Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this week's message. My name's Aaron, and I'm on the staff team here at Eastlake. Everything we do around here depends on the generous donations of our local and online community. People just like you, who tune into these messages and see great benefit from living that idea that life is a gift and love is the point. So if you love what Eastlake is up to, we'd encourage you to contribute by going to eastlakecc.com. With that, let's jump into this week's message. Today, we hear from Kent Dobson as he begins our new series, Wild, Reconnecting with Our Hidden Nature. Please check the description for links to our quarterly Spotify playlist and guided meditation. Hey everybody, Kent Dobson here. Welcome to Eastlake. I'm super happy to be back teaching. Thanks for joining us today. I'm really excited because I have the privilege of doing a two-week series, which I'm calling Wild, Reconnecting with Our Hidden Nature. I want to try to make a case for, for why we need to connect with this wild, instinctual, vital, deep, and hidden self. Why we need that right now, Some, somewhere buried beneath the debris of the thing we call our own ego. Somewhere uh, down deep in the human psyche are resources that I think we need right now. And when I say wild, reconnecting with our hidden nature, I also mean reconnecting in a quite a practical way with the natural world, with the wild world as it is, which of course we emerged up out of and are part of at the same time. Only in the modern madness do we have this kind of arm's length view of the wild world that as if we're somehow not natural, as if somehow we're not 10,000 years old or 2 million years old or um, that we were dropped down like aliens. Maybe that's part of the obsession with aliens, you know, <laughs> that come and visit us. We, the modern... In, in our modern madness, I guess that's what I'm going to call it right now, we somehow think that we're not deeply intertwined with the wild world as it is. And in fact, uh, even the, the terrible COVID reality, global COVID reality, it screams at us directly, you are interconnected with all things. You are part of the natural world and the natural world plays by different rules. And it's neither friend nor foe. It has its own intelligence. And, um, and so maybe I wanna say from the beginning here that what I want, what I want to try to say over the next couple of weeks, I think, matters, not just for kind of personal well-being. I think we can feel more whole and connected when we have a relationship with our own inner wild landscape. I think also we feel more connected and whole when we have a relationship with the wild world and the natural world that is um, more conscious 
but but I would like to say the future of the planet and of civilization as we know it depends in part on cultivating at least some of the things I'd like to talk about. That's just my um, intuition and guess. Like T.S. Eliot says, hints followed by guesses. Um, so that's kind of where we're going. And I also want to sneak in a couple of fairy tales. Fairy tales are very interesting. They're different than straight ahead myths or uh, religious stories. They're, they're they're more common, they're more ordinary, they're more connected to people like us. They're not the property of the religious establishment, fairy tales are not. And they often talk about the more hidden dimensions of what it's like to be a human. So um, I wanna tell two fairy tales, I'll work them in here. One is Iron John, and it's about cultivating a relationship with the wild, in part from a more masculine perspective, and next week, I want to talk about The Handless Maiden, another amazing fairy tale, which is about reconnecting with the wild and instinctual, but from a feminine point of view. And when I say masculine and feminine, I mean archetypal energies, patterns that are real. And we definitely, right now, need to be talking about the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine and what those have to do with gender and how much... Uh, one of the, I think, gifts that Carl Jung gave the world was to say that the psyche contains both masculine and feminine energies. Now, usually one is more dominant than the other, but there's a relationship. There's a yin and yang inside the psyche itself. And it's in the, it's in the tension and the enhancement between the two where all the magic happens. And I think we're very far from honoring the masculine and feminine right now. I mean, on one extreme, we have people saying essentially old caricatures and um, uh, kind of like what was good for my grandfather or something is, is good enough. So caricatures or assumptions about what is masculine and what is feminine, those have to be um, preserved. And on the other extreme, you have things like, well, masculine and feminine are artificial constructs of, of culture. And I think those, neither of those streams honor what I would call the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine. And they help us, they teach us. The myths and, and stories teach us ways in which we can cultivate and what we might need as men and women. Um, and what we, what we might need for our own masculine and feminine, the cultivation of our own masculine and feminine. It's part of how we are creative beings in the world and we desperately need some creativity right now. So that's kind of the train I wanna wander around in. Maybe it's important to start with a, a poem, just a line from a poem. Here's a line from Rilke. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. Human beings are the kind of creatures that bend things, make things, carve civilization out of the forest floor. Yet there are limits. And what is what Rilke is saying is there's something, whenever we talk about the extraordinary or the eternal or truth with a capital T or God for that matter, 
It does not want to be bent by us. Somehow, a relationship of wonder and awe is the best kind of relationship we can have when we bump into what's extraordinary and eternal, like the wild world as it is. I mean, think about, well, in the Pacific Northwest, you have Rainier or Denali in Alaska, or, I mean, does, what would it mean to reshape such a place? Oh, I don't really like the way Rainier is shaped. I think I'll, you know, carve something in the side of it or knock it down a little bit because after all, it's kind of hard to hike up. We'll make it more user-friendly. No, what is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us or, or Everest for that matter. I mean, isn't it, it's, okay, I, I'm about to say something critical of climbing Everest and probably because, you know, it's probably some secret desire that I have or maybe it's now, it's, now it's not so secret. But isn't it sad that right now there is a, massive selfie line at the top of one of the tallest, the, the top of the tallest mountain in, on the globe. And down at Camp One, there are thousands of used oxygen tanks and a giant field of human feces. And still the mountain stands there not wanting to be bent by us. It can't be bent by us. No matter, no matter how many millionaires climb it per year, what is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. And the kind of posture I think that Rilke is describing here requires a relationship with the wild world and requires a, a relationship with our own deep wild selves. Part of us somewhere down in there is at home, is in the natural world is um, in deep communion and in relationship with flowers and streams and grass and trees and sunrise and sunset, the rhythms of the earth. I just got back from Yellowstone and I went there with my family and Yellowstone is still, I was going to say is still amazing. <laughs> It's kind of a funny thing to say. It's amazing that there's still no cell phone reception, which is what I was trying to say. I mean, what a gift, what a relief. Sad will be the day when cell phone towers will start popping up and Wi-Fi access will spread around to each of the little parking lots. And just being there for a few days, you can't help it. You're your own natural rhythm begins to be in deeper relationship with, with the earth. Like, where do I get water from? And what time does the sun come up? And what time does the sun set? And what's happening with the bugs and the weather and the smoke? And, um, and something feels, I think, on one Part, one part of our psyche feels like it's coming home. And I'm not just talking about people who are like into the outdoors that shop at REI or something, you know? I'm, I'm talking about what I'm trying to describe, I would say, is deep, deep in every human being. 
Some of the great myths and stories and legends and fairy tales called this reality the green man or the green woman. And you, as soon as I say that, you have an image of this forest-covered being with mud and leaves and branches and as clothing, you know, that's, that's the green man, that's the green woman. And they have something to teach us about our deep connection with the wild world and also the source of vitality. The earth is deeply creative and abundant. It's just explodes with vitality and life in an endless flood. And something like that is also in our psyches, in our souls, in our, in our spirits. And, and yet we look at culture and, and of which we're a part of, and we see very frightening levels of, of depression and suicide and malaise and nihilism, meaninglessness, and narcissism and fear. And we know something's off. We know something's off. And, and of course, that's a complex conversation. I'm not here to say, just go outside for a week in Yellowstone and um, the whole world will be put to rights. No, I'm talking about um, us as individuals and communities beginning to change how we relate to, to the earth and to our own nature. So um, I want to say, uh, let, let me make a, a point here that there always has been and always will be tension between the instincts, our deep instinctual self, and culture. And the tension, I think, is a good thing. Uh, anyone who has, uh, has kids or has been around kids, <laughs> like everyone, uh, knows that the instinctual raw natures and energies of a child, of a toddler, of a five-year-old, of a six-year-old need some shaping and, and can be like a forest fire that can burn the whole house down. So that's always been one of the roles of human culture, which is to tame and channel and put guardrails or fences around the wild instinctual energies. After all, we all contain the lizard brain. We all have fight, flight, or freeze. Um, these very powerful drives that, in a way, we're not in control of, in, at least not in the way we think we are. They seem to rise up. And, and so having culture that brings some shape is absolutely essential. And that's always been the tension. It's like, um, what happens to the instinctual and wild self when culture does all the shaping? When the guardrails become uh, too rigid, when the fences become too tall, something of the, of the vitality of life is drained out. And if there's not a recovery to a certain extent, of what I would like to call the wild, our own hidden natures, 
then much more broadly, we have a culture of, of nihilism and depression and lack of energy and meaninglessness. And so it very much matters, I think, the kind of uh, recovery I'm, I'm trying to describe. And um, I think maybe let's tell a, let's tell a fairy tale. And then we'll kind of unpack it a little bit. So this week, I'd like to just briefly tell the very beginning of the story of Iron John. And it, Iron John was made popular again by Robert Bly, the poet. He has a book by the same name. Check it out sometime. And I think he published it in the 1980s. And he began, I think, a rejuvenation and conversation, needed conversation about the sacred masculine. <clears throat> and of which I think he only started. I think now, maybe even more than the 1980s, this conversation is needed. So in any case, the story is much older than that. And it's a, it's a European story, most likely, although it's very, very hard to trace the story, the, the origins of myths and fairy tales anyway. So it could be much older. And Bly suggests probably it's somewhere around 5,000 years old. You know, that's older than the New Testament. That's older than the Old Testament. Um, so it's an old story. And old stories are rarefied. They're all of the, um, what's the right metaphor? The chaff. The husk of the, the wheat is blown off in the wind and you, you just end up having the kernels. And those kernels travel around the world and they translate and they and different cultures hear hear the story in different ways. And so in some ways, I think it's important to say there's something in here that has stood the test of time. So enough of that. Hey everyone, it's Kristen. Just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in. I hope that you're finding these messages helpful for you in your everyday life. Um, that's what we're trying to do here is gather around the idea that life is a gift and love is the point and let's give ourselves ways to move forward in that in our own everyday world. Um, so I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for being a part of this community. To those of you who have participated and given financially, we wanna say thank you to you. Everything that we do here happens because people make contributions. People say, I value this place. I want it to exist for me and for other people. And so I'm going to support it. And so we just want to say how grateful we are um, that you do that. And for those of you who maybe haven't had a chance to contribute yet, um, we would ask you to consider maybe doing so. If you find this place beneficial, if you find these messages helpful for you, then um, consider joining us in that way. You can go to eastlakecc.com to make a contribution. We just always are thankful for the people who want this place to exist. So thanks again for tuning in. Let's get back to the message. Here's the very beginning of Iron John. So the story begins with a kingdom and, and a castle and a, and a king and a queen. And life is pretty good. Things are uh, going pretty well in the kingdom. Things are very ordered, as kingdoms tend to be, and 
people have jobs and the economy is okay. And um, people generally have a sense of their place. And every once in a while, hunters come through and looking for adventure and, and game and, um, and to contribute in some way. But in this case, looking for, for adventure. And one day a hunter comes through and begins to ask around, hey, is there anything to hunt around here? And um, I'm not really seeing much in this kingdom and, um, and I'm hungry for adventure. And, and he works his way asking various people until he gets to the king and the king says, well, um, things are pretty good in the kingdom. There, is a, there are woods nearby, but I don't recommend going there because the hunters who go into the woods never return. And the young hunter thinks to himself, well, that's exactly the kind of adventure I'm looking for and heads off <clears throat> to the edge of the kingdom, to the edge of the woods, where you can imagine no trespassing signs or enter at your own risk or um, something like that. And he brings his dog with him and he makes his way into the forest deeper and deeper and he's passing along a small pond and just out of the corner of his eye, he sees a large hairy hand come up out of the pond and snatch his dog and drag it down to the bottom of the mucky pond. And the young hunter thinks to himself, this must be the place. This must be the reason why hunters do not return from the woods. So he heads back into town and recruits a few friends, a few fellow hunters, and they go out to the forest, deep into the forest, back to the pond, taking buckets with them and bucket by bucket by bucket, they begin to scoop out the mucky, murky pond water until at the very bottom, they discover a wiry, hairy, rusty colored, wild man, wild being at the very bottom of the pond. And being the hunters that they are, they capture this being and bring him back to town. And the whole town, of course, is fascinated. And the king says, the only thing to do with the wild man here is to put him in a cage, which is what they do. They put him in a cage and put him in the corner of the town. And, you know, the townspeople can come and observe him. First, it's a big phenomenon. And after a while, they start to forget about this wild caged being. So I wanna pause here for just a second because I wanna do a little bit more of the story, but let's pause here and ask some questions. What is this story talking about? What is it pointing toward? Well, it's pointing to the very tension that I was describing be be before between the wild instinctual self and culture, civilization, kingdom, king, queen, order. It's order and chaos dimension. <clears throat> And it's sophisticated and pretty and nice clothing versus nakedness and hairiness and wiriness and, and a long beard and muck and leaves. We don't want anything to do with that. So the opening scene is really a story about a culture that has forgotten all about the wild and has said the forest itself is off limits. It must be boarded up, um, we it must be kept at bay, we must use our hand sanitizer to uh, avoid any contact with the wild. 
it must be kept at a distance, and even so much so that all that's left are rumors about hunters that if they go in there, they never return, which is a way of telling young people, don't go into the forest, don't go into the instinctual self. It's wild in there. You don't know what you're going to find. Stay at home, stay put, do your job, um, pay your taxes, and uh, we will entertain you. Don't go into the force. We'll give you a handheld device that you can carry around with you everywhere that will provide for you all the imagination you will ever need. That's the claim of culture. But I'll, I mean, it almost goes without saying that, that it doesn't work and one, one part of us is hungry for something more. And that's the hunter that says, hey, nice kingdom and everything, but I'm hungry for something more and I'm willing to take the risk. I'm willing to even risk my own life. It's why, in part, why young people, I think sadly, try to self-initiate through their own wanderings and um, partying and, you know, breaking their parents' hearts and, you know, getting tattoos and whatever, I don't know. Just some kind of break with the order, orderliness of the kingdom. That's that hunger, I think. And anyway, into the force it goes. And, and the story is also saying something else, that if by chance, because I think that's maybe a clue in the story, if by chance the wild instinctual self is stumbled upon, the first thing we are likely to do is put it in a cage because we don't know what to do with it. The first time we discover it, it smells, it's weird. We don't, we, it's, it's, we don't know what to make of it and we're afraid it's gonna tear everything to bits because it might. And maybe that's the reason why there are no trespassing signs on the edge of the forest because sometimes the unintegrated wild self can wreak havoc. And let me just pause here Let's, and make, make a claim. The tension is what matters. It's not like, hey, if you run around in the forest and just break rules and don't wear clothes, you'll be fine. You know, it's saying something like the wild instinctual vital energies of life are needed and their intention with culture and we need culture. So in other words, it's a question of integration, of integra integrating these energies, not just sort of discovering them and cutting yourself off from uh, from the kingdom, so to speak. So what's my point? My point is that it goes into the cage. That's almost the first thing any of us will do if we bump into our own wild selves. Somewhere in the journey of life, after feeling sort of uh, stifled inside the kingdom, we go on a wander, we go on a walkabout and begin to discover bits and pieces of who we are that scare us a bit and into the cage, because at least they'll be safe so let me tell just the second part of the Iron John story here. So one day, as fate would have it, the king's son is playing with his golden ball, which is really a sign or a symbol of his coming kingship. And because not everybody in the kingdom has a golden ball, who can afford it? But he does, and he's playing with it, and <clears throat> he drops it, and it rolls into the wild man's cage. And the boy is frightened at first and runs away. 
because he's not sure what to do. And, and he won't speak to the, to the wild man because people at this point have pretty much forgotten all about him. And, and, and he's a hairy, wild creature in there. He's not clean shaven. He's not manscaped, you know. Um, he's not, he doesn't look like a little boy. He looks like a, a, a hairy um, and scary being. But the boy really wants his golden ball. <clears throat> and so the next day he has courage to come up and stand near enough the cage and, and the wild man says, I'll give you your ball back if you let me out of the cage. And the boy runs away. Which already tells you something, that the boy in us, and, I, and um, again, I think it's important to blur the masculine and feminine here, the masculine energies that we all have, the feminine energies that we all have. But the boy-ish energy here, the masculine energy, needs contact with the wild self. And if, and let me just put it more plainly, if the little boy is going to get his golden ball back and eventually become king, he has to let the wild man out of the cage. Otherwise, there's no story. There's not enough vitality. There's not enough eros. There's not enough energy. Um, but he runs away. Next day, he comes back. Wild man says the same thing. Hey, listen, I'll give you your golden ball back if you let me out of the cage. And, and finally, the boy has enough courage to speak to the wild man. And Robert Bly in his book, Iron John, says... This is a monumental step in our own psychological development or psycho-spiritual development to have a conversation with our instincts, to acknowledge that they're there, the shadowy bits, the, the, the stuff that we're not sure what to do with. If you have a life hell-bent on repression uh, and ignoring and denying, you'll never get there. So just open your mouth and say, all right. And that's what the boy does. He says, all right, I would let you out of the cage, but I don't have any idea where the key is. And um, the wild man says, I know where the key is. It's under your, your, under your mother's pillow. See, it was some kind of Freudian slip just happened there. It's hard for... for men in particular, the masculine, to even admit they have some kind of mother complex. And I won't go into a whole bit here. I wasn't planning on saying anything about the mother complex, but since I made a little Freudian slip here, why not? Um, the matriarchal mother energy is hell-bent on keeping the boy the boy. Be the good boy, be the good boy, be the good boy wear the right clothes, carry the little golden ball around that we gave you. There's no such thing as a wild man. Stay out of the forest. And that's the way it is. And that gets internalized. And this gets internalized with particularly people who, <laughs> I'm not saying you, but someone else. If, if one of your friends, if everything that, that is said about them is that, oh, he's just a really nice guy. You know that some, some grip is there. This is Jacob in the Bible, whose mother has a grip on him and he just stays around the tents and they, they cook up little plans to trick their father. Meanwhile, the brother Esau, Jacob and Esau, yeah, Esau is the wild man out in hunting game and, and you know, smells like the forest and wears clothes of hair, you know, and that's that 
that same dynamic at work here. In any case, he has to steal the key from under his mother's pillow. And one day the boy gets the courage and snatches the key and comes back down and lets the wild man out of the cage. And, and as he's doing so, the cage swings open and injures his finger. It's a wound. He's experiencing really his first wound or he's already wounded and, and it's becoming obvious to him in the ways that he's wounded here. And he's scared and he says to the wild man, I don't know what to do. I've pinched my finger. Everyone will know it's me that has let you out of the cage. I can't go back to the castle. And the wild man agrees and says, you can't, you're right. You can't go back to the ca castle. You have to come with me to the forest. I have more treasure than you will ever know about. And he puts the boy on his shoulders and heads into the forest. And I will put a pause on the story here because um, I also don't want this teaching to be three hours long. So <clears throat> what's this part of the story saying here? That in very obvious terms, if we don't develop and cultivate a relationship with our own wild nature, will remain a little boy without a golden ball. It will have rolled away and we'll never get it back and we'll never, in a sense, become the king or queen of our own life. We'll never grow up. We'll just be locked inside that uh, infantile desire to remain a little boy and never take responsibility and not know about our own instincts and creative capacities. And the story is also saying here that that we're going to be wounded. It's not a matter of some people are wounded and some people are not wounded. For some god-awful reason, human beings are wounded um, by culture, by patriarchy, by matriarchy, by the world, by civilization. We just experience wounds. It's part of the, the, the reality of our own humanness. And the story is saying that when you first begin to discover these wounds, you need contact with the wild to begin a kind of integration or healing process. That's part of what takes place in the forest. You'd have to read the whole myth to find out exactly what I mean, but the, the boy begins a relationship, this wound healing uh, dynamic. He begins to have that conversation, but he has to be in the wild for a time. He has to leave home. He has to leave civilization. He has to leave culture. And I know we read about these things in the old stories and we think it's a metaphor. What I'm suggesting is it's not really a metaphor. It's something much closer to a symbol that has to be embodied, lived, not just thought about. You know, Jesus has to leave his family. He even says, if you don't, if you, you have to hate your mom and dad if you want to be my disciple. He has to never go back to Nazareth. He has to follow a hairy man around in the wilderness who shouts at people and tells people to get naked and get in a river. You know, that's that contact with the wild. He has to spend 40 days and 40 nights in the deep desert with no food before he can even begin what we would call a ministry and we think oh that was nice for Jesus that's not what the story is saying the story is saying if you don't let the wild man out of the cage if you don't experience wounds if you don't snatch the key from under your mother's pillow break her heart break your mom and dad's heart hate your father and mother is the way Jesus says it which is a very extreme way we you know 
focus on the family, whatever. That's a, yeah, that's what it's called. Focus on the family is not going to do like a, a, a three, you know, a three part special on how to hate your mother and father. It's just not going to work. You know, that's civilization say we can't go anywhere near the wild instinctual self. But my point is you have to snatch, you have to take your life back and it's, you're going to be wounded and you have to spend time in the wild forest. You have to spend time exploring your own hidden dimensions and beginning a relationship with them. And into the forest, the young boy goes. So what can I say here kind of in to try to land here somewhere? I actually want to jump maybe to more some more practical questions. What is your relationship like with the natural world? If you're very honest, how much screen time do you actually have? Or do you go out to wild places in order to Instagram them? You know, that's, that's actually using, like Everest, that's like using the natural world to, en to enhance your own egoic persona. That's not contact with the wild. When was the last time you wandered in a wild place? Which is what I would suggest. If you want, if you want, like, you know, in the old school sermon, you know, here are three things that you can apply to your life. Here's something you can apply to your life. Go on a wander. And I mean really wander. Just go out to any place. It doesn't even have to be like some remote area. Just wander in a park, wander in open spaces. Don't bring your phone. Allow yourself to be drawn to the world as it is. Go stand by a stream, go, go sit on a rock, go talk to a raven. Um, imagine that you're being led by a wild being, a hairy being deeper into the forest and see what happens. See what happens, see what starts to come alive, see what senses are there, your smell and your taste and your sight and your hearing, I mean, how dormant are these things when the phone does all the energy making for us? Meanwhile, I mean, I'm about to pick on social media, but the algorithms ought to scare us as a culture that basically, even if we're sophisticated and we know this, the way, this is the way it works, it just feeds us what it thinks we already like, what we already believe and what we already know. That's not contact with the wild world. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. What is extraordinary and eternal can't be run through an algorithm. So you have to break faith with culture for a time. What's your relationship like with your own instinctual energies? Have you had a conversation with them? even with your own emotional uh, and, and hidden dimensions, your own anger, um, your own lust, your own um, even greed, your, the, the, the stuff that you try to keep down, um, your own fight or flight, even your own fear. My phone kind of glitched out there for a second. I was saying fear. I don't think you can be a living, breathing, thinking human being right now and not have some fears, carry some fears about the state of affairs and the political climate we live in and the global situation and, 
and the fires and floods and and waste and you know all the really challenging things that are facing humanity right now so we need to have a conversation with our own fears and somewhere out in the forest is a green man or a green woman who is two million years old that has something to teach us about what does it mean to be a human being and what does it mean to have contact with the vital and old streams of human energies that drive life forward that um that feed our own creativity and the our own creative capacities to dance, to dance in the forest and dance in culture, to be generative and creative contributors to life rather than just consumers. Um, as if everything is just a buffet of our own tastes and proclivities and pleasures and um, passing wants. So go into the forest, that's my, my challenge. And I would do it today, not tomorrow, just do it. Just walk around, um, go swim in a cold river, feel what it feels like to um, sink into the forest and to spend some time there. Trust that something in you, this hidden dimension, wants to wake up and have a say in your life. If I can fast forward a little bit in the Iron John story, eventually, after learning the secrets of the forest from the wild man, he's cast back into civilization and culture. He doesn't live out there forever. He's given a kind of task. He has to return. So there's this like leaving and returning dimension. Like Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness and back. So maybe, maybe it's worth saying a coming and going is needed. So where are you in your life? Where are you in that pattern? And um, where are we as a culture in that pattern? Well, pretty far from trusting that something of the wild world and something in our own deep instinctual psyches has something to give us right now. So maybe I should leave it there. I wanna leave it there. It's a two-part series. Next time I'll talk a little bit more about wild and um, reclaiming and reconnecting with our hidden selves. And I wanna talk a little bit about the feminine here through the fairy tale of the handless maiden. So that's coming next week. I wish you all, uh, I was gonna say I wish you well, but right now I wish you a relationship with these hidden dimensions. See you next week. Thank you for joining us. To make a donation, head to eastlakecc.com slash donate.